Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, the second part of my conversation with Keith Hauer a while ago. Even though he's in town, it was over Zoom. This was the dueling questions part. I knew Keith would not be at a loss for words, either in the asking or the answering. So we had a good time. And uh, here it is for your listening pleasure. Thanks, not just Panini, but to Tops and Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Hugs and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, ComC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So here it is, and thanks, everybody. My first question was, and I didn't get to see it because I came along after Beckett had been around. I was there about 16 years after the start because I know the hours we put in that sports data publishing. My question was, what was your day-to-day like? at the beginning there, around 1985, about a year after you launched the magazine. This is really going to get me in trouble <laughs> really answer the question because there is no statute of limitations on stuff like this, and you can't unhear it if you hear it. But this wasn't 365, but I worked a lot. I did have a heart attack in there. But basically, when I was under deadline pressure, which could have been coming down the home stretch for a book or a magazine, and it could be for some period of weeks, wasn't necessarily months, but I slept every other night. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds familiar. It's amazing what you can get done when you just work through the night. A lot of all-nighters, but it was never two in a row. I had 11 meals a week. I had seven lunches and four dinners. I'd have dinner with my family every other night. And the other nights, I would just work through the night. I didn't drink coffee, but I drank Cokes. Yeah. But I got a lot done. You've done a lot of things I've done. When you're pricing cards and you're going through these sets, you build up momentum. You get a hyperspeed. Yeah. You just get in the flow. And that could have been for a couple of weeks of doing that. Because if you do it too long, don't do as I say, don't do as I did. It was not a good strategy for good health. But um, you understand the deadline pressure. You can't say, well, I'm just going to work at it 40 hours a week. You no, know, it's got to get done. You'll be working. And I had great guys to delegate, but you specifically mentioned 85 and none of those guys were around. It was me, myself, and I. <laughs> that's what I figured. I that's why I asked. Times. Okay. That's a bad one to start, Keith. Okay. A hobby loves rumors. Yes. And Panini's the subject of some of the rumors, just like Beckett Publications used to be. What's the best current rumor or best rumor? period that you've heard that may or may not involve you or your company. There's some crazy stuff out there. So any rumors that you want to debunk? I've actually learned it's better not to address any of them because just like collectors and everybody else, we read the message boards. We see what people are talking about. So you're saying denying it makes it worse? No, I think even sometimes even addressing it because some of them are ridiculous. I'll give you this one then and I will completely debunk this is we have no idea what cards are in what boxes. That part is completely separate from us. We build a roadmap for what is supposed to be in a box, but that could be any number of cards. We never drill it all the way down to specific. So yes, to debunk that rumor, we do not know what cards are in what boxes. If you follow that through of what it would take to do that. Oh, it's insane. I don't think a lot of us would want to be a part of that process. It'd be not fair. It's yeah, it's behind closed doors. The democratization of the hobby that is so wonderful is when you open a box, a kid, an adult, a man or a woman, anybody could get anything. And it ought to be according to the rules you've set up in the product. I still love doing the QCs. When we open a case, like we know what types of cards are supposed to fall in the case, but we never know specifically what's going to be there. We still get super excited to go up there and do those keys. You're going to get a big hit and you don't know what it is. Absolutely. Okay. 
What are you collecting these days? I've seen some of your collection over the years. We've run into each other at the National. I missed you at the last Dallas Card Show. What are you looking for? Basically, I'm not really completing sets, but I have players I like. I work the dollar boxes, but I'm always interested in something for my card wall, which means if it's already BGS slabbed, that is more desirable because my wall is slabbed cards or something that's worthy. I really haven't gotten it breaking. I've done a tiny bit, but a breaking is the only way you can get something spectacular. So sure. I that. You're not going to find it. You say, oh, you found some great cards in the dollar box? No. I didn't find any great cards <laughs> in the dollar box. But I found cards that helped me to have a, a self-sustaining hobby and enjoying. And I, I'm a long tail guy. It's mainly players and stuff that's not going to make headlines. Okay, okay. My quick question for you. There's been a restructure. This is a hypothetical. Okay. Restructuring at... Panini. And Scott Prusha is offered the job of executive vice president of marketing. Okay. Yeah. Nobody's been let go. It's just they've been a, moving around and people have been promoted up. Okay. The catch is, does Scott take the job, but he's required to wear a three-piece suit and tie <laughs> every day to work? Does he take the job? My answer is yes, but the only way I envision this is the scene in Dumb and Dumber where the guys show up to the benefit dinner and one of them's wearing a baby blue tuxedo with a big tall hat. The other one's wearing an orange one. That would be the suit Scott Prusha would okay. wear to that job so, every day. Okay. <laughs> so it'd be an in-your-face type thing and he'd be daring them to rescind that part of the offer. That sounds like his personality okay. to me. Okay. <laughs> okay. My question. I heard a story. This was probably about 15 years ago and it was about you and your buddies and this person told me, and I won't tell you who it is, said that you would be able to go in with a couple of buddies, buy a case of product, have somebody cover your buy-in cost. Then you would open the case, keep the couple cards you wanted and pay off your buy-off or your buy-in to whoever gave you the money with the cards that you pulled out of your set. So you walked away, you got to open a case of cards, you got to keep cards, but you didn't have any money on the line at all. Is that true? It's actually not true, but it sounds like there's no free lunch, Keith, I don't think. But are you saying I'd be like a celebrity breaker? No, this was for your own collection. They said you were able to get into buying cases, walk away with cards and have no money invested. And I said, that's no, genius. No, that sounds no. like something Dr. I, Beckett I, might, I'm contemplate might be able to pull geez, off. I mean, it's, <laughs> sounds pretty hypothetical to me. No, I love buying collections. I bought some unopened stuff, but I like to open it. And nobody gave me the money. Like I say, I'm self-sustaining. So I bought some larger collections and I'll put some stuff on ComC. I'll sell some stuff on eBay. I'll give some stuff to Rich. But no, that actually sounds pretty interesting. So I could get something. You were one of the few people I thought that might be able to pull that off. That's why I had that. Here's the thing. Rich Klein and I come at this from opposite ways. If somebody offers you a collection and it's, let's say, $1,000. It's a $1,000 collection. So it's worth more than that, but they want 1000 bucks for it. Rich Klein looks at it and he says, with these 10 cards, I can get my thousand bucks back. And so I'm going to do the deal. And I got all the rest of the cards there. What I say is, I want those 10 cards. The other 99% I don't want. I want to get the thousand bucks back from the cards I don't want. I and that's you. always the way I've done it. So that's a little bit like what you're saying there. I want to keep the best cards. I want to put them on my wall. And otherwise, I want to find a home for the cards with somebody that that also appreciates them. Brilliant. Okay. If so. you're ever able to pull that one off, call me first and let me know. 
Because it sounded plausible to me when I heard this. Not story. sure how that works. I think somebody be saying, "Hey, what's in it for the other person?" Okay. Um, what's the favorite aspect of your job? Favorite task or duty? You can go back to your Beckett Publications days. Was it seeing the publication when it came out and thinking, "I really made this happen"? Was it a product that comes out? You think this is a great product. I hope people really love. What's the aspect of your job that you really enjoy? That's your favorite part. It was the same thing working in publications and doing the magazine. Like you said, it's really important to me at the end to have something tangible. That's what card collecting is. Find some cool stuff you really like, hold on to it and share it and talk about it and display it. That's very gratifying being able to hold the product in your hand at the end of the day. But the part I enjoy the most is the interaction, the planning of the set, the talking it through in this room that I'm sitting in right now between myself, David Porter, Tim Trout, Rob Springs, all the guys that had come from Beckett. You're talking over a hundred years of experience. And we've all got our specialties that we collect. So everybody's got a different voice and a different perspective. Being able to sit there in that room and hear the other people talk. Because if you look at the way that we've got the set structured, there's a different hook for each one. We don't build one kind of set that's right. going to appeal to everybody. We want people to be able to pick and choose what, well, each, what each they want to collect. Each brand has its own identity. Yeah, cool. correct. It's the process of going through that and figuring out what this is supposed to be and who your target audience is, and then hearing the experience and the opinions of everybody else in the room. That, to me, is the coolest part of working here. Okay. You've seen, obviously, the rise of the hobby and how it built up through the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. We had a little bit of slump. Now we're on the, the uptick again. Where do you see this thing going over the next, let's say, one year, five years, and 10 years? What I don't like is three steps forward, four steps back. Yeah. yeah. I want one step forward at a time. Fanatics, which is going to eventually have all these licenses and paid huge bucks for them, they have a goal of increasing the hobby by 10x. I don't want them to do it all at once. <laughs> and I only want 10x the number of collectors, not 10x the price of cards. So if there's a gradual increase in the value of cards and the number of collectors. I hope the same thing for Upper Deck and Panini, that there's more basketball collectors, there's more hockey collectors, more and more of the North American or even world public become enamored of collecting cards. And even the Pokemon and stuff like that, we get some benefit from that. Any card-like elements, hopefully, is going to generate a steady... I'm a slow and steady rinse the race. Again, even in our company, we had fast growth. But I didn't like fast growth. You can't control it anyway. When it grows too fast, like it did a year and a half ago, then there's some adjustment. And yeah. I don't like that. I'd rather have things just go up a little bit. But again, that's part of the dynamic element of the industry and the hobby that makes it really fabulous, is that you cannot predict whether something is going to go up this year or the following year, maybe go down for a little while. There's this ebb and flow. And the great thing for you in basketball, I don't even know their names yet. I know Victor Wembanyama, but, and you do too. When you go out two or three years, the 15-year-olds, I don't know who the great 15-year-olds are that are going to be driving the products in 2026, but they're going to be great. Yeah. I don't know what size they're going to be. They may be like Trey Young, not huge, but just an amazing player. Luca had a body type that people didn't think would work. And Chet Holmgren had a body type that people were like, how's that going to work? It didn't work this year for him. Sure. Ultimately, they're going to be athletic, strong, skilled players. And that's going to be driving the hobby in a good way. 
every year, you're going to have the established veterans and the emerging stars that are really coming on, building their stats. Okay, if you guys had to add one guy to your team, you had two last people that you were going to decide. One had lots of hobby experience, but really didn't have any common sense, let's say. And then the other person had very little hobby experience, but was super sharp, hardworking, the kind of person you would want to work with. I think you'd want to hire the person, even if they didn't have the hobby experience, but what would you do to help this new sharp person get up to speed on the hobby? Would you tell them to go go work in a card shop for a few weeks, immerse yourself at the card show that's coming up, or just hang out with us guys? That is something we're faced with pretty frequently. The first thing, honestly, I've given them the crash course of how I gathered information when I worked at Beckett. Because that is the best way for you to see what this industry is. It, it gives you a full breakdown. I remember you asked me a question when we were at dinner a couple of years ago. You asked if working at Beckett provided us with like almost a cheat sheet to building trading cards. And yeah, it did. Because you've basically reverse engineered an entire program by the time you've gathered the information on eBay and validated it and looked at it and priced it. You're an expert by the time you're done with it. So that's what I try to teach you guys when they come is I have them looking at the secondary market sales. I have them watching the breakers break a case and have them read the message boards and see what people are saying, because you'll never run out of things to read. You'll never run out of information to gather on the secondary market. You'll never run out of breaks to watch. So those tools are available and usually it gets their brain going and they see collecting the way they're going to see it, which is great because nobody sees it exactly the same way. And that's how we're able to get all of these cool product concepts because everybody comes together with a different idea. So thinks the same. That's not good. We tell people you're going to walk in the door and it's going to be a full year before you understand exactly what you're doing and why you're doing it. Because the full life cycle of a product is nine months. You're looking at a minimum of a year to understand why you're doing what you're doing. So let's end this on that pregnancy note. Okay. <laughs> gestation period that is similar to raising a small human. <laughs> yeah, 100%. That's the problem in our industry is that when you're born, you got to hit the ground running. It's the same thing. You've already got a year invested in it by the time it comes yeah. out. Keith, thanks for being here. I hope everybody enjoyed it as much as I did and wish you the best 